friends, it's Morgan Snyder, and welcome to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. Several years ago, I found myself stepping into a rhythm of asking God to give me a Christmas gift of sorts to give to you, the listeners, of some pause for a story in the season that allows us to just settle in, to slow down a little bit more, to linger, and to notice. And in that space, to allow the bustle and the hustle of the world to still our souls enough to access something um, that is transcendent, that reminds us of who we are, of where we're from, and of where we're going. I found myself several years ago watching a film called Babette's Feast. It's an ancient film by today's standards. And I was prompted to pick up the written version of the story originally penned by Isaac Dennison. And I have turned back to the story time and time again over this past year. It's a story that in so many ways embodies the true heart of the message and the mission of Christmas. And so as a gift, I'd like to invite you into a two-part podcast series. Uh, Babette's Feast is a public domain book, and I'd like to share with you an audio reading of that story. So my invitation in this podcast and the next is to try to set aside distraction, to try to set aside multitasking and all the things that would cause our attention to be diffused and divided. And as a gift from the heart of God for you here today, to set aside the practice of your full attention, to leave the country in which you find yourself, the culture in which you find yourself, the time in history in which you find yourself, and to step back into something more ancient and something more different in the hopes that we can find even more greatly that which we share in common. Friends, welcome to a reading of Babette's Feast, a short story by Isaac Dennison. Chapter 1. The Two Ladies of Berlevec In Norway, there's a fjord, a long, narrow arm of the sea between tall mountains, named Berlevec Fjord. At the foot of the mountains, the small town of Berlevec looks like a child's toy town of little wooden pieces painted gray, yellow, pink, and many other colors. Sixty-five years ago, two elderly ladies lived in one of the yellow houses. Other ladies at the time wore a bustle, and the two sisters might have worn it as gracefully as any of them, for they were tall and willowy. But they had never possessed any article of fashion. They had dressed demurely in gray or black all their lives. They were christened Martine and Philippa, after Martin Luther and his friend Philip Melanchon. Their father had been a dean and a prophet, the founder of a pious ecclesiastic party or sect, which was known and looked up to in all the country of Norway. Its members renounced the pleasures of this world for the earth and 
all that it held to them was but a kind of illusion, and the true reality was the new Jerusalem toward which they were longing. They swore not at all, but their communication was yay, yay, and nay, nay, and they called one another brother and sister. The dean had married late in life, and by now had long been dead. His disciples were becoming fewer in number every year, whiter or balder and harder of hearing. They were even becoming somewhat querulous and quarrelsome, so that sad little schisms would arise in the congregation. But they still gathered together to read and interpret the word. They had all known the dean's daughters as little girls. To them, they were even very now very small sisters, precious for their dear father's sake. In the yellow house, they felt that their master's spirit was with them. Here, they were at home and at peace. These two ladies had a French maid of all work, Babette. It was a strange thing for a couple of Puritan women in a small Norwegian town. It might even seem to call for an explanation. The people of Berlevac found the explanation in the sisters' piety and kindness of heart. For the old dean's daughters spent their time and their small income in works of charity. No sorrowful or distressed creature knocked on their door in vain. And Babette had come to that door twelve years ago as a friendless fugitive, almost mad with grief and fear. But the true reason for Babette's presence in the two sisters' house was to be found further back in time and deeper down in the domain of human hearts. Chapter 2, Martine's Lover As young girls, Martine and Philippa had been extraordinarily pretty, with the almost supernatural fairness of flowering fruit trees or perpetual snow. They were never to be seen at balls or parties— but people turned when they passed in the streets, and the young men of Berlevec went to the church to watch them walk up the aisle. The young sisters also had a lovely voice, which on Sundays filled the church with sweetness. To the dean's congregation, earthly love and marriage with it were trivial matters, in themselves nothing but illusions. Still, it is possible more than one of the elderly brothers had been prizing the maidens far above rubies and had suggested as much to their father. But the dean had declared that to him in his calling, his daughters were his right and left hand. Who could want to bereave him of them? And the fair girls had been brought up to an ideal of a heavenly one. They were all filled with it and did not let themselves be touched by the flames of this world. All the same, they had upset the peace of heart of two gentlemen from the great world outside Berlevec. There was a young officer named Lorenz Leuvenhelm, who had led a gay life in this garrison town and had run into debt. In the year of 1854, when Martin was 18 and Philippa 17, his angry father sent him on a month's visit to his aunt in her old country house of Fossum near Berlevec, where he would have time to meditate and to better his ways. One day he rode into town and met Martine in the marketplace. He looked down at the pretty girl and she looked up at the fine horseman. She passed him and disappeared. He was not certain whether he has to believe his own eyes. In the Lovenholm family, there existed a legend to the effect that long ago, a gentleman of the name had married Haure, 
a female mountain spirit of Norway, who is so fair that the air around her shines and quivers. Since then, from time to time, members of the family had been second-sighted. Young Lawrence, till now, had not been aware of any particular spiritual gift in his own nature. But at this one moment, there rose before his eyes a sudden mighty vision of a higher and purer life. With no creditors, dunning letters of parental lecture, with no secret, unpleasant pangs of conscience, and with a gentle golden-haired angel to guide and reward him. Through his pious aunt, he got admission to the dean's house and saw that Martine was even lovelier without a bonnet. He followed her slim figure with adoring eyes, but he loathed and despised the figure which he himself cut in her nearness. He was amazed and shocked by the fact that he could find nothing at all to say, and no inspiration in the glass of water before him. Mercy and truth, dear brethren, have met together, said the dean. Righteousness and bliss have kissed one another. And the young man's thoughts were with the moment when Lawrence and Martine should be kissing each other. He repeated his visit time after time, and each time seemed to himself to grow smaller and more insignificant and contemptible. When in the evening he came back to his aunt's house, he kicked his shining riding boots to the corners of his room. He even laid his head on the table and wept. On the last day of his stay, he made a last attempt to communicate his feelings to Martine. Till now, it had been easy for him to tell a pretty girl that he loved her. But the tender words stuck in his throat as he looked into this maiden's face. When he said goodbye to the party, Martine saw him to the door with a candlestick in her hand. The light shone on her mouth and threw upwards the shadows of her long eyelashes. He was about to leave in dumb despair when on the threshold he suddenly seized her hand and pressed it to his lips. I am going away forever, he cried. I shall never never see you again. For I have learned here that fate is hard and that in this world there are things which are impossible. When he was once more back in his garrison town, he thought his adventure over and found that he did not like to think of it at all. While other young officers talked of their love affairs, he was silent on his. For seen from the officer's mess, and so to say, with its eyes, it was a pitiful business. How had it come to pass that Lieutenant of Hussars had let himself be defeated and frustrated by a set of long-faced sectarians in the bare-floored rooms of an old dean's house? Then he became afraid. Panic fell upon him. Was it the family madness? which made him still carry with him the dreamlike picture of a maiden so fair that she made the air around her shine with purity and holiness. He did not want to be a dreamer. He wanted to be like his brother officers. So he pulled himself together and in the greatest effort of his young life made up his mind to forget what had happened to him in Berlevec. From now on, he resolved he would look forward and not back. He would concentrate on his career, and the day was to come when he would cut a brilliant figure in a brilliant world. 
His mother was pleased with the results of his visit to Fossum, and in her letters expressed her gratitude to his aunt. She did not know by what queer winding road her son had reached his happy moral standpoint. The ambitious young officer soon caught the attention of his superiors and made unusually quick advancement. He was sent to France and to Russia, and on his return he married a lady-in-waiting to Queen Sophia. In these high circles he moved with grace and ease, pleased with his surroundings and with himself. He even in the course of time benefited from words and turns which had struck in his mind from the dean's house, for piety was now in fashion at court. In the yellow house of Berlevac, Philippa sometimes turned the talk to the handsome young, silent man who had suddenly made his appearance and so suddenly disappeared again. Her elder sister would then answer her gently, with a still, clear face, and find other things to discuss. Chapter 3. Philippa's Lover A year later, a more distinguished person, even than Lieutenant Leuvenhelm, had come to Berlevec. The great singer Achille Papin of Paris had sung for a week at the Royal Opera of Stockholm and had carried away his audience there, as everywhere. One evening, a lady of the court, who had been dreaming of a romance with the artist, had described to him the wild, grandiose scenery of Norway. His own romantic nature was stirred by the narration, and he had laid his way back to France, round the Norwegian coast but he felt small in the sublime surroundings. With nobody to talk to, he fell into a melancholy in which he saw himself as an old man at the end of his career, till on a Sunday, when he could think of nothing else to do, he went to church and he heard Philippa sing. Then in one single moment, he knew and understood all. For here, were the snowy summits, the wildflowers, and the white Nordic nights translated into his own language of music and brought him in a young woman's voice. Like Lorenz Leuvenhelm, he had a vision. Almighty God, he thought, thy power is without end. Thy mercy reacheth unto the clouds. And here is a prima donna of the opera who will lay Paris at her feet." Akio Papan, at this time, was a handsome man of 40 with curly black hair and a red mouth. The idolization of nations had not spoiled him. He was a kind-hearted person and honest toward himself. He went straight to the yellow house, gave his name, which told the dean nothing, and explained that he was staying in Berlevec for his health and the while would be happy to take on the young lady as a pupil. He did not mention the opera of Paris, but described at length how beautifully Miss Philippa would come to sing in church and to the glory of God. For a moment, he forgot himself. For when the dean asked whether he was a Roman Catholic, he answered according to the truth. And the old clergyman, who had never seen a live Roman Catholic, grew a little pale. All the same, the dean was pleased to speak French, which reminded him of his young days when he had studied the works of the great French Lutheran writer Le Ferve de Top. And as nobody could long withstand Achille Papin when he had really set his heart on a matter, in the end, the father gave his consent and remarked to his daughter, 
God's path run across the sea and the snowy mountains where man's eyes see no track. So the great French singer and the young Norwegian novice set to work together. Akil's expectations grew into certainty and his certainty into ecstasy. He thought, I have been wrong in believing that I was growing old. My greatest triumphs are before me. The world will once more believe in miracles when she and I sing together. After a while, he could not keep his dreams to himself, but told Philippa about them. She would, he said, rise like a star above any diva of the past or the present. The emperor and the empress, the princes, the great ladies, and Belle's esprit of Paris would listen to her and shed tears. The common people, too, would worship her, and she would bring consolation and strength to the wronged and oppressed. When she left the grand opera, upon her master's arm, the crowd would unharness her horses and themselves draw her to Café Anglais, where a magnificent supper awaited her. Philippa did not repeat these prospects to her father or her sister, and this was the first time in her life that she had a secret from them. The teacher now gave his pupil the part of Zerlina in Mozart's opera Don Giovanni to study. He himself, as often before, sang Don Giovanni's part. He had never in his life sung as now. In the duet of the second act, which is called the seduction duet, he was swept off his feet by the heavenly music and the heavenly voices. As the last melting note died away, he seized Philippa's hands, drew her toward him, and kissed her solemnly as a bridegroom might kiss his bride before the altar. Then he let her go, for the moment was too sublime for any further movement or word. Mozart himself was looking down on the two. Philippa went home, told her father that she did not want any more singing lessons, and asked him to write and tell Monsieur Papin so. The dean said, and God's path run across rivers, my child. When Akil got the dean's letter, he sat immovable for an hour. He thought, I have been wrong. My day is over. Never again shall I be the divine Papan. And this poor weedy garden of the world has lost its nightingale. A little later, he thought, I wonder what is the matter with that hussy. Did I kiss her by any chance? In the end, he thought, I have lost my life for a kiss. I have no remembrance at all of the kiss. Don Giovanni kissed Zerlina, and Akil Papan pays for it. Such is the fate of the artist. In the dean's house, Martin felt that the matter was deeper than it looked and searched his sister's face for a moment, slightly trembling. She too imagined that the Roman Catholic gentleman might have tried to kiss Philippa. She did not imagine that her sister might have been surprised and frightened by something in her own nature. Akil Papan took the first boat from Berlevec. Of this visitor from the great world, the sisters spoke but little. They lacked the words with which to discuss him. Chapter 4. A Letter from Paris 
Fifteen years later, on a rainy June night of 1871, the bell rope of the yellow house was pulled violently three times. The mistress of the house opened the door to a massive, dark, deadly, pale woman with a bundle on her arm who stared at them, took a step forward, and fell down on the doorstep in a dead swoon. When the frightened ladies had restored her to life, she sat up gave them one more glance from her sunken eyes, and all the time without a word fumbled in her wet clothes and brought out a letter which she handed to the sisters. The letter was addressed to them all right, but it was written in French. The sisters put their heads together and read it. It ran as follows. Ladies, do you remember me? When I think of you, I have the heart filled with the wild lilies of the valley. Will the memory of a Frenchman's devotion bend your hearts to save the life of a French woman? The bearer of this letter, Madame Babette Hersant, like my beautiful empress herself, has had to flee from Paris. Civil war raged in our streets. French hands have shed French blood. The noble communards standing up for the rights of man have been crushed and annihilated. Madame Babette Hersant's husband and son have been shot. She herself was arrested in Petrules and has narrowly escaped the blood-stained hands of General Galifant. She has lost all she possessed and dares not remain in France. A nephew of hers is a cook to the boat Anna Kobiorensen, bound for Christiana, as I believe the capital of Norway, and he has obtained shipping opportunity for his aunt. This is now her last sad resort. Knowing that I was once a visitor to your magnificent country, she comes to me, asks me if there are any good people in Norway, and begs me, if it be so, to supply her with a letter to them. The two words of good people immediately bring before my eyes your picture, sacred to my heart. I send her to you. How she is to get from Christiana to Berlevec, I know not, having forgotten the map of Norway. But she is a Frenchwoman, and you will find that in her misery she has still got resourcefulness, majesty, and true stoicism. I envy her in her despair. She is to see your faces. As you receive her mercifully, send a merciful thought back to France. For 15 years, Miss Philippa, I have grieved that your voice should never fill the Grand Opry of Paris, when tonight I think of you, no doubt surrounded by a gay and loving family, and of myself lonely, forgotten, by those who once applauded and adorned me. I feel that you may have chosen the better part in life. What is fame? What is glory? The grave awaits us all. And yet, my lost Zerlina, and yet soprano of the snow, as I write, I feel the grave is not the end. In paradise, I shall hear your voice again. There you will sing without fears or scruples as God meant you to sing. There you will be the great artist that God meant you to be. Ah, how you will enchant the angels. Babette can cook. Deign to receive, my ladies, the humble homage of a friend who was once Akil Papan. At the bottom of the page, as a P.S., were neatly printed the first two bars of a duet between Don Giovanni and Zerlina. 
The two sisters till now had kept only a small servant of 15 to help them in the house, and they felt they could not possibly afford to take on an elderly, experienced housekeeper. But Babette told them that she would serve Monsignor Papin's good people for nothing, and that she would take service with nobody else. If they sent her away, she must die. Babette remained in the house of the dean's daughter for 12 years, until the time of this tale. Chapter 5. Still Life Babette had arrived haggard and wild-eyed like a hunted animal, but in her new, friendly surroundings, she soon acquired all the appearance of a respectable and trusted servant. She had appeared to be a beggar. She turned out to be a conqueror. Her quiet countenance and her steady, deep glance had magnetic qualities. Under her eyes, things moved noiselessly into their proper places. Her mistresses, at first, had trembled a little, just as the dean had once done, at the idea of receiving a papist under their roof. But they did not like to worry a hard-tried fellow creature with catechization. Neither were they quite sure of their French. They silently agreed that the example of a good Lutheran life would be the best means of converting their servant. In this way, Babette's presence in the house became, so to say, a moral spur to its inhabitants. They had distrusted Monsieur Papin's assertion that Babette could cook. In France, they knew people ate frogs. They showed Babette how to prepare a split cod and an ale and bread soup. During the demonstration, the French women's face became absolutely expressionless. But within a week, Babette cooked a split cod and an ale and bread soup as well as anybody born and bred in Berlevec. The idea of French luxury and extravagance next had alarmed and dismayed the dean's daughters. The first day after Babette had entered their service, they took her before them and explained to her that they were poor and that to them, luxurious fare was sinful. Their own food must be as plain as possible. It was the soup pails and baskets for their poor that signified. Babette nodded her head as a girl. She informed her ladies she had been a cook to an old priest who was a saint. Upon this, the sisters resolved to surpass the French priest in asceticism. And they soon found that from the day when Babette took over the housekeeping, its cost was miraculously reduced, and the soup pails and baskets acquired a new mysterious power to stimulate and strengthen their poor and their sick. The world outside the Yellow House also came to acknowledge Babette's excellence. The refugee never learned to speak the language of her new country, but in her broken Norwegian, she beat down the prices of Berlevec's flintiest tradesmen. She was held in awe in the marketplace. The old brothers and sisters who first looked at the foreign woman in their midst felt a happy change in their little sister's life, rejoiced at it, and benefited by it. They found that troubles and cares had been conjured away from their existence, and that now they had money to give away, time for the confidences and complaints of their old friends, and peace for meditating on heavenly matters. In the course of time, not a few of the brotherhood included Babette's name in their prayers and thanked God for the speechless stranger, the dark Martha in the house of their two fair Marys. The stone which the builders had almost refused had become the headstone of the corner. 
the ladies of the Yellow House were the only ones to know that their cornerstone had a mysterious and alarming feature to it, and it was somehow related to the black stone of Mecca, the Kaaba itself. Hardly ever did Babette refer to her past life, when in early days the sisters had gently condoled her upon her losses. They had been met with the majesty and stoicism of which Monsignor Papin had written, What will you, ladies, she answered, shrugging her shoulders. It is fate. But one day she suddenly informed them that she had for many years held a ticket in a French lottery and that a faithful friend in Paris was still renewing it for her every year. Sometimes she might win the grand prize of 10,000 francs and that they felt that their cook's old carpet bag was made from a magic carpet and at any given moment she might mount it and be carried off back to Paris. And it happened when Martine and Philippa spoke to Babette that they would get no answer and would wonder if she even heard what they said. They would find her in the kitchen, her elbows on the table, her temples in her hand, lost in the study of a heavy black book, which they secretly suspected was a prayer book, where she would sit immovable on the three-legged kitchen chair, her strong hands in her lap, her dark eyes wide open, as enigmatic and fatal as Pythia upon her tripod. At such moment, they realized that Babette was deep, and that in the sounding of her being, there were passions, there were memories and longings of which they knew nothing at all. A little cold shiver ran through them, and in their hearts they thought, perhaps after all, she had indeed been a petrolus. Chapter 6, Babette's Good Luck The 15th of December was the dean's 100th anniversary. His daughters had long been looking forward to this day and had wished to celebrate it, as if their dear father were still among his disciples. Therefore, it had been to them a sad and incomprehensible thing that in this last year, discord and dissension has been raising their heads in his flock. They had endeavored to make peace, but they were aware they had failed. It was as if the fine and lovable vigor of their father's personality had been evaporating, the way Hoffman's anodyne will evaporate when left on a shelf in a bottle without a cork. In his departure had left the door ajar to things hitherto unknown to the two sisters, much younger than his spiritual children. From a past half a century back, when the unshepherded sheep had been running astray in the mountains, uninvited dismal guests pressed through the opening on the heels of the worshipers and seemed to darken the little rooms and to let in the cold. The sins of older brothers and sisters came with late piercing repentance like a toothache, and the sins of others against them came back with bitter resentment like poisoning of the blood. There were in the congregation two old women who before their conversion had spread slander upon each other and thereby to each other ruined a marriage and an inheritance. Today, they could not remember happenings of yesterday or a week ago, but they remembered this 40-year-old wrong and kept going through the ancient accounts. They scouted each other. There was an old brother who suddenly called to mind how another brother 45 years ago had cheated him in a deal. He could have wished to dismiss the matter from his mind, but it stuck there like a deep-seated, festering splinter. 
There was a gray, honest skipper in a furrowed, pious window who in their young days, while she was the wife of another man, had been sweethearts. Of late, each had begun to grieve while shifting the burden of guilt from his own shoulders to those of the others and back again and to worry about the possible terrible consequences through all eternity to himself brought upon him by one who had pretended to hold him dear. They grew pale at the meetings in the yellow house and avoided each other's eyes. As the birthday drew nearer, Martine and Philippa felt the responsibility grow heavier. Would their ever-faithful father look down to his daughters and call them by name as unjust stewards? Between them, they talked matters over and repeated their father's saying that God's paths were running even across the salt sea and the snow-clad mountains where man's eyes see no track. One day of the summer, the post brought a letter from France to Madame Babette Hersant. This in itself was a surprising thing, for during these twelve years, Babette had received no letter. What, her mistresses wondered, could it contain? They took it into the kitchen to watch her open and read it. Babette opened it, read it, lifted her eyes from it to her ladies' faces, and told them that her number in the French lottery had come out. She had won... 10,000 francs. The news made such an impression on the two sisters that for a full minute they could not speak a word. They themselves were used to receiving their modest pension in small installments. It was difficult to them to imagine the sum of 10,000 francs in a pile. They pressed Babette's hands, their own hands trembling a little. They had never before pressed the hand of a person who the moment before had come into possession of 10,000 francs. After a while, they realized that the happenings concerned themselves as well as Babette. The country of France, they felt, was slowly rising before their servant's horizon, and correspondingly, their own existence was sinking beneath their feet. The 10,000 francs which made her rich. How poor did they not make the house she served? One by one, old forgotten cares and worries began to peep out of them from the four corners of the kitchen. The congratulations died on their lips, and the two pious women were ashamed of their own silence. During the following days, they announced the news to their friends with joyous faces, but it did them good to see these friends' faces grow sad as they listened to them. Nobody, it was felt in the brotherhood, could really blame Babette. Birds will return to their nests and human beings to the country of their birth. But did the good and faithful servant realize that in going away from Berlevec, she would be leaving many old and poor people in distress? Their little sisters would have no more time to tend to the sick and sorrowful. Indeed, lotteries were an ungodly affair. In due time, the money arrived through offices in Christiana and Berlevec. The two ladies helped Babette to count it and gave her a box to keep it in. They handled and became familiar with the ominous bits of paper. They dared not question Babette upon the date of her departure. Dared they hope that she would remain with them over the 15th of December? The mistress had never been quite certain how much of their private conversation the cook followed or understood. So they were surprised when on a September evening, Babette came into the drawing room, more humble and subdued than they had ever seen her, to ask a favor. She begged them she said, to let her cook a celebration dinner on the dean's birthday. 
The ladies had not intended to have dinner at all. A very plain supper with a cup of coffee was the most sumptuous meal to which they had ever asked any guests to sit down. But Babette's dark eyes were as eager and pleading as a dog's. They agreed to let her have her way. At this, the cook's face lighted up. But she had more to say. She wanted, she said, to cook a French dinner, a real French dinner. For this one time, Martine and Philippa looked at each other. They did not like the idea. They felt that they did not know what it might imply. But the very strangeness of the request disarmed them. They had no arguments wherewith to meet the proposition of cooking a real French dinner. Babette drew a long sigh of happiness, but still she did not move. She had one more prayer to make. She begged that her mistresses would allow her to pay for the French dinner with her own money. No, Babette, the ladies exclaimed. How could she imagine such a thing? Did she believe that we would allow her to spend her precious money on food and drink or on them? No, Babette, indeed. Babette took a step forward. There was something formidable in her movement, like a wave rising. She had stepped forth like this in 1871 to plant a red flag on a barricade. She spoke in her queer Norwegian with classical French eloquence, her voice like a song. Ladies, had she ever during 12 years asked you a favor? No, and why not? Ladies, you who say your prayers every day, can you imagine what it means to a human heart to have no prayer to make? What would Babette have to pray for? Nothing. Tonight she had a prayer to make from the bottom of her heart. Do you not then feel tonight, my ladies, that it becomes you to grant it for her with such joy as that which the good God has granted you your own? The ladies for a while said nothing. Babette was right. It was her first request, these 12 years. Very likely, it would be her last. They thought the matter over. After all, they told themselves, their cook was now better off than they, and a dinner could make no difference to a person who owned 10,000 francs. Their consent in the end completely changed Babette. They saw that as a young woman, she had been beautiful. And they wondered whether in this hour they themselves had not, for the very first time, become her, the good people of Akil Papan's letter. Friends, we are about halfway through this great story, and I'm just impressed to break it up into two episodes. Uh, if you're listening down the road, you can listen to them back to back if you'd like to do that. But for those of you who are in real time journeying through the Become Good Soil podcast, my invitation is to pause here. Um, this is a public domain story that you can access for free online. And one of the organizations that accessed the story of Babette's Feast and repackaged it in a beautiful um, group discussion is the Trinity Forum out of DC. And they offer some questions for further curiosity as we find ourselves just halfway through this intriguing and hopeful story. I wanna put three questions out there and invite you to choose one. So listen to three and then choose one. The first is this life 
of these folks in Norway. It is an ascetic life um, in a particular sect, a very stringent religion, very stripped down, simplified, and erased of anything that might look worldly. Why do you think um, these people would choose that sort of path to their new Jerusalem? And what sort of effect do you think it might have upon them? That's question one. Second question that the Trinity Forum offers to us is, Denison, the author, tells of a true reason for Babette's presence further back in time and deeper down in the domain of human hearts. What is it? What is the true reason that you notice for Babette's presence? The third question is in reference to the grand Opry singer, Akil Papan. And the question is, what does Papan mean by saying that Don Giovanni kissed Zerlina? Yet Papan must pay for it. If you recall, there is an unplanned, unexpected, and almost um, unconscious kiss that takes place. But it's not between a lovely young woman and an Akil Papan. It's between Don Giovanni and Zerlina as they practice the seduction duet. Yet Papan must pay for it. What's in his heart What's stirring and what are the implications? Friends, those are three questions. My invitation is choose one. You can just rewind to the one that's resonating the most and linger with me for 90 seconds to enjoy this Christmas gift, a treasure shared in community, a story that's meant to access the greatest story ever told that lives deep in our body so often in the subterranean, so often beyond the accessibility of our soul on any given day. My invitation is go there, feel, notice, wonder, see what rises. And please join us back at the Become Good Soil podcast for part two of the story of Babette's Feast. Thanks, friends. Let's take 90 seconds. <laughs>